0: I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. I hope you're doing well. It seems that the end of lockdown might be on the horizon, who knows? I hope that you are looking after yourselves and finding time for yourselves and hopefully Seeing listening to this podcast and this episode as a moment of reflection and maybe even self care for you. So, I am so excited to give you this episode this week. It is with Candice Brathwaite, who you probably have heard of because she is an absolute Force and such a strong voice in the parenting and motherhood arena. She is a influencer and she founded something called Make Motherhood Diverse, which is an online initiative that aims to encourage a more representative and diverse depiction of motherhood in the media. And she has a new book out. I was so lucky because her publisher gave me time with her on her publication day. The book is called I Am Not Your Baby Mother. It is incredible. I've read it twice in preparation for the interview, which I would have read it anyway. It is so fantastic. It is part memoir, part manifesto about Black motherhood. And in this interview, Candice and I talk about her childhood, her traumas, how she found herself being a kind of, in her words, you know, she didn't necessarily want this, this kind of role of this voice and activist that she is now with this book and with her platforms we also talk about spirituality and how her spiritual practices really help to keep her grounded when things around her can get pretty intense and we talk about that you know now famous incident with another mummy blogger who gave racist comments about Candice. We talk about that. She's incredibly open about that. And I think you'll hear in the episode just the energy that she brings. She really helped me access a, a really alive and fun part of me. And um, she is brilliant. I think you're going to love this episode. As ever, if you did, please leave a comment on iTunes. I know I say it every week and you probably get bored of me hearing it. The reason I say it is because if we get more reviews on the mother kind podcast page apple and other podcast platforms will share it more and the more people that hear these conversations as far as i'm concerned the better so i hope that you really enjoy this episode here it is Welcome to the podcast, my lovely. Congratulations. We are recording this. I feel so honored that I have got an hour with you on your publication day. It might be slightly delirious. <laughs>
1: Honestly, I was just saying off recording. I've been on the champ since like nine forty-five and only had a slice of toast.
0: Like, oh yeah, everything's so lovely. No, Um, listen, you deserve it. um, You deserve
1: it. Yeah, it's not a light-hearted book, and I was so nervous. And it's out there now, and it's like giving up a kid for adoption. I'm like, right the child is gone, what can I do? I cannot follow everyone around and ask them to be respectful or not judge them. It's gone and you can only hope for the best kind of thing.
0: Well, I've read it twice. Ooh. And I mean, the emotions that I went through, you know, I read a lot mm. of books and a lot of this type of book, like part self-help, part memoir, you know, it's my thing. And God, it brought up shame. Mm. It brought up massive identification in some areas of your life, you know, particularly around mm. addiction and trauma. You know, that's my story. Yeah. I wanted to hug you a lot. Oh, I wanted yeah. to grab, like, your seven-year-old self. And, yeah. like, I felt like a protective mother energy coming through in bits of mm. it. Yeah. But mostly, like, I thought, how was I so unconscious? Like, some mm. of the things you were talking about, and I was wondering whether, are you bored of, like... Privileged white girls like me saying, I'm sorry, I was so unconscious, I feel shame. Or is that kind of what you want to do? Because I know some people that I follow in the space are like, please stop talking about your shame. We're, it's not about you, we're bored of it. And so I'm wondering, mm. oh no, I don't think
1: I'm the bored type. I'm always excited by, and this is the thing, I need to make it clear it's not just white women, it's a class thing. It's a where you're born thing. It's not just the idea of a middle class white woman. There are parts of that book where you can see me and my partner at loggerheads where I'm like, "Oof, you, you think private education is the norm. Whoa, 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 whoa. And he's a black guy from Africa. And that just brought up things in me that I was like super triggered by. And so I'm never bored. I'm like, this is a bottomless pit of conversation and communication. And yes, there are boundaries around how much I should offer up to people, but I never want to be one of those people, not just black people, but one of those people who are like, I'm
0: tired of speaking about this with you because I'm still learning. I feel the same. You know, my jam is like, transgenerational trauma I love it that's why I think I inhaled your book twice because that's what I really saw in you in the story yes it's like someone who's almost taken all the pain and we're gonna get into some of that pain hopefully if you're sharing with us (laughs) and almost like alchemized it into this truth that Mm -hmm. is changing other people do you see yourself as that like character in your lineage
1: Completely. But it comes at a really massive cost. I am the black sheep of my family on both sides, but specifically on my maternal side. I'm too outspoken. I rock the boat too much. Why can't you just accept that this is the way things have always been? And why can't you just be a cog in this wheel? Because it was about 20 that I really started to spread my wings and be like, this is so wrong. This is so traumatic that actually I'm physically going to run away. I'm going to move away and try and find my way in the world because anything is better than doing this again and again and again. And it's come at great cost. It's come at a cost that my children won't pay the same price, but I've paid a very heavy price for the things I write and the way I speak. And so I'm always very tender with especially women, black women, about encouraging them to live their truth. It's like, yeah, cute, but so few speak about the cost of this living of truth. Not everyone can afford it. Not everyone is ready for it. And I don't want to like paint this idea of freedom that most nights I'm really lonely. Even today, I'm really alone in this celebration because I have decided to go against everything that my community says is okay. So, yeah.
0: And does it feel now like you couldn't imagine it any other way?
1: Completely. I was really lucky. My dad and my maternal grandfather from a really young age where like caution to the wind, screw what any of them say or think. You get one shot, do it to the best of your ability and don't even let like your own mother's ideals hold you back. I'm really, really lucky. There are some people trying to do the work or the activism I do with no one supporting them. You know, my dad's dead now, but at least I had two guys back in my corner who were like, For you to be the person we know you're destined to be, you're going to have to cut a lot of people off, including maybe even the person that gave birth
0: to you, which is so crazy. You know, Maya Angelou talks about the same, right? She Mm. says the same thing. But for her, it was the other way. It was her mother who kept saying to her, you're destined, you're destined. She believed it.
1: It makes me really emotional.
0: I don't know why. I know. It's a really, I've been crying all morning
1: because I said online... And then, now I'm gonna cry. I said, I don't think people understand how social media does get a bad rep sometimes, but people online have stood in for me today where my parents aren't there, you know? And so it's really been a place of joy for me today. It's like, yeah, not everyone is in agreement with the way you're trying to push a narrative forward. But there is so much love from people you may never meet that it's enough to
0: like bridge that gap. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. we'll see, <laughs> it's so yeah. true. And you know, someone said to me, "You never know." Like, it's not often the people who comment, even who are in your inbox, that you're influencing. And we've had a few exchanges on Instagram, not many, yeah, yeah. but you have really influenced me in terms oh, of God. your mindset and your thinking. And and I think you will be having a far greater influence than you even could fathom right now. I'm sure of it. Mm. And that's the thing. And that's the only thing I'm holding on to. And
1: I especially understand that as a black woman, black people are going to read that book and the work is going to happen so quietly because there are going to be people that are ready to admit they're in traumatic relationships with their mother, their father, their husband. And they're going to read that and be like, "Ah, I'm going now. You do not need to make a public declaration about that. But to know I was part of that choice is really a massive deal, honestly. It's a huge legacy. Yes. Yes. Legacy has been the theme of the week in our household. And yeah, to know that I've had my place in that or this book will do that. It's almost scary. I think. Yeah, of course it's
0: scary. I, I would scary. be petrified. <laughs> What's interesting to me is I see this time and time again, like the people that I see like you really standing in their power and their truth and accepting the loneliness of that, as you said, have Mm. such resistance to it as well. And yes. I love that you talked about you're resistant to even become a mother, and I'd love to talk about that because mm. me too. And yeah. then you were so resistant for this book, but it found its way through you. You got like declined, didn't you? Like four other ideas, <laughs> and it's clear to me like this book was the one that was trying to channel through. Yes.
1: Yeah. I didn't want any of this life. I was meant to be 32 on some Sheikh's yacht in Dubai. Like, this is is not what I had planned. And um, the motherhood thing came and I was resistant to that because I felt like I'd spent so much of my childhood mothering people. I was like, actually, I'm done with that. I've not been able to go to my prom or, you know, have a Saturday job because I'm looking after my siblings. And your mother, weren't you? And my mum, yeah, with her ill mental health. And so I was like, oh, you know, I was so firm in that. And it's early on in the book that I wouldn't even use the term, admit that I speak about my first abortion because I was like, I'm not doing this. And then as they came along and softened my heart a bit, but even now with two kids, I'm still like, oh no, wow. Okay. I am your mum. That's really strange. And I think I didn't want to write this book because I didn't want to historically cement the fact in the British library that like I was writing about being a mum. like how boring. It just felt so boring. And I say it all the time, I work in a space where Motherhood books are a dime a dozen. It's like you come on Instagram, you grow a platform, you get a book deal, you write about how much you hate your kids and how much gin you drink, and then the next thing. I could go on a big rant with
0: you about this. It's,
1: yeah, it's insanity. You know? And even though, even from the outside, I knew that I could perhaps create something different, I felt intimidated by even having to write something in the parenting arena. I was like, it's so saturated, it's so mind-numbingly boring to me right now, I don't want to have anything to do with
0: it. Yeah, but it's saturated with, I want to say, unconscious voices, and that sounds mm. judgmental and it actually isn't, it's kind of just truth, that there mm. aren't many mothers talking about the stuff that you talk about in your book, which is what comes up from your own childhood when you become yes. a mother. So yeah, tell us yeah. a bit about that. What came up? Because you're a little bit like me in that I don't have a blueprint to follow. I'm rewriting uh-uh. a generational blueprint. And yeah. that is kind of like daily tough work. And for yeah. you, it's you, know, you say in the book, when you had Esme, all that came up for you. Tell us, mm. share about that. Yeah.
1: Having Esme really made me have to think about my relationship with money, the idea of generational wealth the general universal idea that we should be shielding our kids from traumatic things. I never had that privilege. I saw my mum take an overdose when I was six. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, you know, out the gate, I'm, like, in a space where it's, like, bailiffs are at the door, seeing your mum in, like, a mental health institution. I'm leaving secondary school to go and rock my two-month-old brother to sleep. That's my childhood. And so when I had my own kids, I was like, that's not the way it should be done. And how are you going to take the steps to make sure that if you can control it, all they remember from being a kid is like Rice Krispies and perhaps being disappointed at Santa Claus's offering one year. How is that going to be their top level trauma? And I was just like, I don't know if I have the capacity to do that. I don't know. If I have the strength to learn new skills and teach kids things that I've never been taught, I'd never been taught that. Same. You know. <laughs> I've never been taught. That. And now to watch my children run to the snack drawer and just expect food to be there is so funny to me. And then when there's not their specific snack there, they're just like, oh mum, dad, can you go Tesco? And I'm just like, ooh. I have to sit with that because I didn't even have the space to say to my mum, I don't want that meal for dinner. There was no other meal. You had the same meal every night,
0: didn't you? Tuna and... Salmon and rice, every night. (laughs) Tin salmon and rice. Yeah.
1: And I'm like, the fact they even have those options, my friends, you know, laugh all the time. They're like, you're really raising kids who, when you tell them about how you grew up, they're just going to be like, mum, you're lying. Like, this don't even make sense. Like, what are you saying? (laughs) Just like, it's weird. It's very strange and hard.
0: I've got two girls, but sometimes I feel like I've got three because I've got my own inner child. Yeah. I'm kind of parenting all three of us. That's how I feel a lot. And when you're
1: giving your children things you never had, you're having to quiet the child in yourself and you're having to, like, then tell your adult self, no, I can't afford to do this. It's okay. Do it. While the child in yourself is like, no, we can't
0: do that. There's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: I feel you on that completely. Yeah.
0: So I think one story that really got to me, and it might not be the story that you think I'm going to say, because there are some big, powerful, traumatic stories. The one Mm -hmm. that had me sobbing was the Bugaboo story. Yeah. And I think the reason I felt so sad about it, I'm going to ask you to share it for those that haven't read the book yet, is because the mum had a toddler on her hip, mm. and I thought that toddler becomes that kid that then shames your Esme later on in the book. Ooh. Yeah, and I think that's why I got so upset. And I thought I just felt so much empathy and compassion for you in that moment. Mm. It's tough. And isn't anger, it? and anger, I felt anger. Yeah, you went to get a secondhand bugaboo, and you were faced with with horrific racism.
1: Yeah, the woman, a white lady, clearly thought myself and my sister went to pick it up, thought we were charity workers. Then when she found out we weren't, she wouldn't take like the security latch off the door, and you know it was just this disconnect of seeing me in my full humanity. And like quickly trying to get me off her doorstep. And it's so funny, I'm even trying to purchase this specific pushchair to prove myself to the world. Like, I've got myself together. I've got the pushchair that all of the mums who are not in my tax bracket have. I can do this. And even in the moment of trying to purchase it, I'm reminded that no, you don't really have this just because of how you look. And I was kind of young at the time, 25. There are so many preconceived notions about my version of
0: motherhood. And yet yeah, it was a slap in the face, to be fair. You talked about still experiencing that at mummy blogger events. Yeah.
1: As my career developed and then I started to go to these events because it's what you're encouraged to do as well. It's where you network, it's where you meet people there is that soft three second gaze where someone takes you in from head to foot and determines if you're worth their time and in my early days of trying to build a freelance career I was worth nobody's time nobody's it was like People would say hi just because it's like, oh, she's the only black girl here. If I don't say hi, this is going to be a problem. Hi, but then look straight past me and be scanning the room for whoever has the largest platform or whoever's (sighs) going to help. Really? I swear to you.
0: I swear to you.
1: (laughs) What? Whoever's going to help grow their thing. And don't get me wrong, I've met some hard, fierce friends in those spaces but the general consensus was, you're not down, your skin's too brown, you're not rich enough, you don't get it. And there are so many women who message me now who are like, you know, I've just had my first kid, and I went to this or that, and I don't feel like I fit in. And I'm like, I feel you and you probably don't. And you know what's also okay, it's okay to not want to mill around in circles that aren't accepting of you because of their own bias or privilege, it's okay to just be like, actually, I don't have to do that. And you know, when people get towards the end of the book, I'm honest about the fact that if I had a crystal ball, we wouldn't be having this conversation. To me, there's been too many intrusions on my personal life. There's been too many knots to my mental health to make this mummy blogger thing worth it. But I'm here now. And so you just think, okay, experience. But off the top, I'm not encouraging women to choose this path for themselves. No way.
0: So tell me a bit about the what is brought up for you then with your own mental health. You know, there's you we talked about it a bit, this kind of high mm. price that you're paying to, mm. to be this voice. I understand
1: that in the mummy blogging arena specifically, I'm perhaps an annoyance more than this welcomed voice. And I am an annoyance because I am having to point out situations, adverts, whatever, spaces where largely white middle-class women have been so comfortable and have had no one question the work and what they're doing that when I come along it's like oh for god's sake would she shut up we were onto a good thing why are you pointing out that we need more disabled people or more Asian people like could you pipe down type of attitude and I think the trolling towards the back end of 2019 really amplified that it was like on one hand, publicly, I'm being brought on podcasts to talk about birth death rates for black women in Britain. But privately, it's like, oh, she weaponizes race. You know, she is a problem. For me, I don't know if that was worth it because I'm really tired. And I had an interview a week ago with a journalist and she was like, you know, I really read your book. And it feels like a resignation towards this mummy blogging scene. And I was like, well, I'm not going to change your mind about that. You take what you take from what I've given. I wouldn't say it's a resignation, but it is very much my defining moment. Like, please do not put me in a space with people who secretly would blow the fire off my candle if they could, because I perhaps represent or remind them of the fact that they are employed because so many other women are overlooked and so many things, the finance of this industry is not split fairly. There is no thought or care for women who do not fit this mould. I understand how that can be annoying, but it's cost, it's cost me a lot to spread that message,
0: basically. Mm, particularly how you handled the horrific experience that you had when someone was trying to ruin your career, Yeah. By outing something in your past. I don't know if you want to talk about it. I mean, you've talked about it in the book, so (laughs) I guess you do.
1: And I say it really confidently. I used to be a sex worker and someone took it upon themselves to email every brand that I worked with. And my management team, of course, my man, like <laughs> everyone close to me knew that. That was really funny. But they believed they could use my past as something to like stop my career dead in its tracks. Now, the funny thing is there had been rumblings about this for say a year before that moment. So we're talking Christmas 2018. And I was saying to my management I was saying to my other half oh I should just come out and talk about this you know because I hate when people think they have something over me mm-hmm. but the general consensus around me was no 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 it will be fine da, 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 da. and then the day my manager called me and she was crying she was like I don't even know how to tell you this but someone's really going They're putting their foot on the pedal and they're really trying to expose you, for lack of a better word. And the timing of the situation was so precarious because it was like three days after the trolling sensation. So my name was already in newspapers for something that actually had nothing to do with me. And I was devastated, not because I was ashamed. I was devastated because I didn't listen to my instincts. If I had listened to myself a year ago, I could have led with my truth in a way that suited me. And I didn't do it.
0: And You said that you said that in the book about the same blogger that kicked off the trolling and said that you used yeah. as a race. You said when you met that person, we're not going to use names because that's not what this is about, even though everyone will know what we're talking about. But when you <laughs> met that person your inner alarm system went off and you overrode it. it. screaming. But how often do we do that as women? We're how often do we mean. do that? Men don't do it as much. Do you yeah, know why it is? It's because we're taught as little girls when we say, I don't like that uncle hugging me. Yes. We're told, give him a hug, give him a hug, yes. say bye, kiss your uncle, kiss your granddad. Even though you get that feeling where you're like, this isn't right. You get this is it. often taught to override it
1: you've got to override that. You've got to please people. You've got to be seen to be nice. Yeah. And you know, not only did I get that feeling about her, my mum got that feeling about her. And to this day, my manager and my other half are like, whenever I bring them a situation, they're like, don't even bring us a situation because you were so right the first time. And we were so wrong that we've learned to just follow your lead. We Trust you. follow yeah. your lead because you were so on point. And I think, had I listened to my feelings about her, we wouldn't have ended up where we were back end of last year, because I would have cemented the fact in my mind that this is not a friendly, kind person. Mm. But I learned the hard way. And, you know,
0: again, it's just all experience, unfortunately. And I love how you talk about not listening to that instinct and putting yourself at the bottom. And you use this brilliant pyramid analogy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) around how you say, you know, there's white men at the top. Mm -hmm. Talk us through it. In my head, (laughs) there's a
1: pyramid and white men are at the very top and then you have white women and then under white women are, for me, other voices that are termed as... BAME apart from black or other and then you have the black man at the very bottom of the pyramid but black women aren't actually visible on the pyramid as a shape on a piece of paper to me black women are the stilts holding the pyramid up in the soil Like, that's where black women are. and It's like, no one wants to hear us. No one wants to believe us, but we are having to
0: hold everything up. And what I learned from your book is how the cultural, what's happened generationally has Mm. impacted that and how hard it is. You know, and it must piss you off to see these self-care cutesy memes all over oh Instagram God. without understanding, <laughs> actually, that, you know, I come at it from my generational stuff, but you've got that plus, plus. plus. Mm-hmm. It's like,
1: right, if I want to do self-care, sometimes a black woman's self-care is a divorce. Or it's finally admitting that her uncle sexually assaulted her. Or it's admitting that maybe the man she's with is because he was the first man to show her love, not because she actually loves him. Like, it's so deep. It's so deep. And that's the thing. I think the cover of the book has tricked everyone. They're like, oh, yeah, let me buy this book. It's It's
0: not a cute book. book. (laughs) I read you said in Stella. What an article in Stella. I know, I know. (laughs) I read you said in Stella, no one's going to call me a a mummy blogger after this. For me, no one was calling you that anyway. I never saw you as a mummy blogger, if I'm honest. I saw you as an activist from the start. But the book is, I mean, it is hard hitting. And I'm Mm. wondering like the statistics that you pull out, because I know this is your lived experience, but did researching those statistics, how did that make you feel? Did you know those stats? No, I didn't. Apart from the childbirth one, I
1: didn't know any of those stats. You have a feeling when you are the subject of inequality, you have a feeling, but to see certain things. So only 20,000 black people
0: graduate compared to 200,000 white people. I mean, I I'm, I I know what you're saying. Like, I know that. I went to uni. I only have one black friend. I mean, she is like incredible, but that's just one.
1: That's so it's kind of like,
0: I know. That this
1: that's... is the thing. And see, chapters like that, I didn't go to uni. So actually seeing that on paper, I was like, oh, no, no, we're really screwed before we begin. And then, say, in the chapter about knife crime, the same year all those black kids get excluded from school, is the same year bricks and mortar in Brixton gets bought for over 30 million quid. And I'm like, yeah, but the schools in the county are saying they're underfunded. (laughs) it just blew my mind to see it in black
0: and white it really did the part of the education that you provided me in, in the book was things that I knew but like I'd never really thought about in the way that you presented them in how in my privilege like I went to uni I came home when I finished uni and I wasn't forced to pay rent which is the norm right yeah. it can be the normal. Yeah. I know there's no yeah. normal, you know but, but you know I then was able to get a job and my parents supported me while I was on the on the career ladder you know that's and,
1: and the thing is most 17 18 year old black kids are supporting their households it's not the other way around most of them don't go to uni because our parents need our income from our part-time jobs Yeah, and you
0: talk about this in the book, Sending Money Home. Yeah, and the
1: idea of sending money backwards. We are encouraged to get what in maybe our grandparents' eyes is a really good education, which is top level A-levels, and then go out into the workforce because it's seen as like a cultural duty to support your family back home or the family that came before you and when I look at the difference not just between black and white people but black and Asian people I'm just like we seem to be the only race who see this as normal Mm. can we start to send money forward can we start to expect our children to be homeowners can we start to expect to see our children enjoy generational wealth and private education if that's your choice but when you are a 17 year old, and I've been that 17 year old, who can't even go out with your mates because it's your duty to keep the electric meter topped up, there's already a glass ceiling that so few are going to understand.
0: Where do you go from there? <laughs> you can't, can you? It's like you're starting the running race 10 counties back. Yeah. Exactly. And then, you know, halfway through
1: the race, there are people who don't understand your life telling you, oh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work a bit harder, stay out of gangs, don't get in trouble. And so we're not just in a race, our lane has hurdles. More than
0: hurdles, but, you, you know, know, ditches and hurdles. And <laughs> this is it. And so sending money back is more important than enjoying work this whole concept and you talked about this really really made me think as well because you said I'm the only woman in my family who enjoys what I do the only one
1: and not just like in my immediate family when I think about every woman living so like third cousins and great aunts and I am the only woman who gets up every day and is jazzed to do her job the only one in 2020
0: is that because the focus is on sending the money back you get a job and you earn it in order to send the money back not forward yes that is part of the issue but the other
1: issue is that we of course are not encouraged to feel pleasure and this is really layered for black women because it's not just pleasure in a sense of right I can go to a pleasurable job and make money that makes me happy early on in the book our sexual pleasure is so constrained it's so for the offering of men it's always for other people there are oh god I can count on one hand the black women I know and none of them are family members who live a life of pleasure They wake up and they tend to a garden that makes them happy, or they've married someone that makes them happy. Black women lack space to feel true pleasure and true joy. And I think when we talk about jobs and money, it's just that it's very amplified in that because we are always in service. And so when it comes to sending money back home, everyone naturally thinks of the black woman in the home doing that first.
0: It's back to your pyramid, isn't it? If you're at the bottom of the pyramid, holding it up, there's no pleasure or joy there. You this know, is it. there's a lot of pressure, downward pressure. Yes. Yeah,
1: and I understand that in my community, the book I've offered up could mean that I'm a pariah because I've done something really ballsy. I've written that because if I'm a white man, I'm yeah. like, yeah, I've walked to the have. top of the pyramid, and I'm <laughs> yeah. like, hi guys. Down there is really messy and we've got stuff to sort out and join me on this March to Freedom. And I know there are going to be some black people who are like, oh, my God, why did she do
0: that? Because the secrecy, you talk a lot about the secrecy, which is Mm. particularly around mental health. It's just not talked about.
1: Oh, the only place mental health is talked about usually in black communities is in a church with a pastor or a deacon. And it's with some like 12 step plan to like pray these demons away. But there are no public conversations about your child being sectioned or you feeling blue or no, 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 no. Because... We have such an emphasis on religion in our community that the first thing is, oh, are you praying enough? Oh gosh, have you left room for demons to get in your life? Whoa, 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 whoa. And so no one Are you religious? You
0: don't really talk about that in the book. Mm, Because I'm
1: not religious in like a Christian sense. I'm really spiritual and I believe in like a higher power but I bloody hate church. Oh, I can't bear it. I'm like, oh God, this is terrible.
0: (laughs) And so (laughs) it's more oppressive white men at the top, right? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you, why (laughs) would you engage with that? (laughs) I don't want
1: to come out and be like, oh, you know, I don't want to say that I find the constraints of being a Christian black or otherwise too much, but I do believe in a higher power. But I also believe that Christianity was used as a stronghold to trick Black people into slavery. I believe that too. And so, you know, it's a very thin line. And I try to give my family members who do believe in the church and what it brings to their life, leave room for that to grow. But I have to be strong about what I believe in. And the kind of Christianity I was raised around just seeks to silence Black women even more. So I'm like, actually, it's not my bag. <laughs> and tell me about what spirituality means to you. Oh, it's everything. More often than not, if I'm feeling bad in my physical, it's because I've let something in my spiritual practice slip. So tell me about your spiritual I, practice. I am so into meditation and crystals and understanding like my planet alignments for the month. And <laughs> I believe in the ancestral plane, I believe in dreams, I believe in all of that stuff. And for anyone who's like, I'm a bit confused, if you watch Black Panther, I believe in everything the Black Panther movie illustrates. I believe in being able to liaise with people that have passed on, who are guiding you and helping you. And whenever I start to feel poorly physically, which I felt really poorly during this whole pandemic, and I know that's because I let my physical brain lead. I just got so wrapped up in the world is on fire. We're all going to die. I've not finished what I want to do. And then it just charged around my body. When I, after my dad died, when I was 20, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And what is interesting about that illness is there's so little facts about it. And that's mm. generally because there is a book that I've been reading called The Body Holds the Score. Or yeah, the body amazing Keeps book. Score.
0: Amazing book. And I'm like, I believe in that,
1: dude. Like, where does this trauma go? Yeah. You don't just get abused or you're silenced and then it's okay. No, your body takes note of all of that. Of and does, when yeah. I'm not rooted in my spiritual practice, the only place the ill feeling can show up is in my physical. And I know that's a bit woo-woo for people, but if... Not not for (laughs) listeners
0: of this podcast. Everyone will be like, do (laughs) you love that book?
1: (laughs) If I can't meditate or get time alone, like I missed a therapy session last week and oh my God, I literally crawled on my stomach to my laptop yesterday because I was like... Not having that one hour to really communicate without judgment how I feel impacts my entire week.
0: And especially with a book like this coming out, I can't afford that. I can't afford it. I'm the same. You know? Well, I do 12-step recovery where you sit in meetings and talk about your feelings. Yeah. And if I miss one of those, I feel the same. It's like I need that space held for me. Yeah. yeah, And me too, it comes out physically you know, shoulder ache, it'll start. Yeah. It's never about the it's, shoulder it, ache. It's always it's about that. what am I holding, what's going on for me. And yeah, it's never that. And it's
1: never like you being stressed up your, is it cortisol in your yeah. body? Yeah. Then your arteries, then you have a heart attack, but it can all be traced back to the thing that can't be touched, which is stress. Mm. So I'm like, actually, my spiritual practice is a way to stop me falling physically ill and it's very important
0: yeah Mm -hmm. and amazing that your children will see you doing those practices yeah rj's too and he'll
1: like grab a crystal and sit cross-legged he's got no idea what he's doing he's just like he's just sitting there like um (laughs) like yeah you do that Bless him. I oh, can't. It's so funny. No, I love it. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's so funny, isn't it? Like, I'm really into holding space for Jessie's feelings because it's something I never had. But it's a blessing and a curse because now she'll come to me, she's four. She's like, mummy... I feel really overwhelmed in my tummy. And I'm like, you know, when you just don't have time for it, and I'm like, I've kind of created this, so now I've got to sit down and, you know. (laughs) She puts words to it now. And i taught her that, but equally it's like, God, I'm kind of in the middle of something. (laughs) okay. Is it? It is a double-edged
1: sword, but as they get older, I just think that's the best way, man. Oh, it's It's the the only way. way. It's the only way. I'm
0: joking. I like it. Yeah god if I'd have learned at four how to process feelings like a lot of stuff would have been different for me
1: yeah to be in a space spiritually and mentally where you can provide your kids with those tools that sometimes is the legacy it's not always money or business or
0: change or upping your class level I'm gonna say it I think it's the most important legacy because I think as a child human when you have that emotional literacy that esteem that enoughness Mm. you can do anything and this is the thing. You can and make the money. Really, you can do it. And that is what white men have above all of
1: us. It's not that they are white men passing as in, in their body. It's because they are white men, they have never been told that they can't do something or they've never thought that something's out of their reach because all the billionaires look like them. All the most successful people look like them so just naturally they awake every day and they smash life because it's like oh yeah I see myself in success everywhere and that is where the trick is it's being able if you can't see it to have a support system that trick you into believing that you too are worthy of that space Yeah. yeah.
0: But I think there's a nuance here, isn't there? Because yes, in terms of a work and ambition front, but we know that, you know, the biggest death rate for men is suicide. under Suicide. Right. So it's like, yes, they might be able to get at the boardroom table or get to uni, but they can't process a feeling. They can't talk. talk. Yeah, they can't talk. Then that way they become at the bottom of the pyramid this is it.
1: I know some people will be like, really? I have great white male friends who at 40, 50 year old, after having kids and being married, are now coming out as gay. They couldn't say that when they were going to boarding school or getting their first really great paid job, you know? Yeah. But after like five decades of all this spiritual work, they're like, actually, I don't like this bottom of the pyramid feeling. And I feel differently to how my peers View me, and I'm ready to step into that truth. And it's just so mind blowing to have relationships with men who seemingly have the world at their feet, but in a spiritual sense, are just as at the bottom of the pile as I am
0: in Absolutely. terms of what they can discuss. And isn't that yeah. like the curse of modern day life? Like, we yeah. have so much abundance in so many ways, and yet so many people are spiritually bankrupt
1: yes
0: yes girl don't make me click
1: my fingers because literally literally oh I could go on but
0: <laughs> I can talk to you I mean hopefully when this is over I want to meet up and we can talk yes. for hours about this stuff but right now I've just got four minutes of your precious publication day time so I have to ask you the last question Which I ask to everyone, which is if you could give just one gift to all mothers in the world, what would it be and why? One gift.
1: I would give you the gift of being able to see your children as adults, how you've currently raised them. So like the gift of seeing into the future. Wow. No no
0: one said that.
1: I think if sometimes we were able to see into the future, there were just so many things you would do differently. If in your vision, your 21-year-old daughter was coming to you, crying about a certain situation, if you were able to see that, I think the way we would parent would be so different. And I think the things that we, especially as newer mums, lose sleep over would just cease to exist it's like, I do not care if you're eating pasta off the floor today. <laughs> you, you're I'm, not going to die. Really, I, it,
0: I'm clicking because, because that is literally what our mother kind is about. It does, yeah. People say to me, I'm so worried. I think my kid's having too much screen time. I'm like, literally doesn't matter. Literally all the study, it doesn't matter. What does matter is how connected are you two? How present yeah. are you with her? How able are you to look after yourself so that she or he can see what of that look? This is the stuff that matters, not the yeah. not the which nappy brand you use or or, or what or anything. Any of it. Or even in my what case, the, the bloody buggy.
1: I ended up, and I didn't even put this in the book. Like a month or so later, I realised the bloody buggy was faulty, it didn't even close properly. After all of that,
0: <laughs> well, that I would say. That's the spiritual message right there. (laughs) After all of that, like those
1: things in the macro do not matter, especially since lockdown. Esme lives on some kind of screen, Nintendo, Xbox, I don't bloody know. But the other day she came to me and she was like, mum, can we have a talk about, you know, what I've learned about myself in lockdown?" I was like, oh, okay, you're six. She was like, I've learned that. I really want to learn to appreciate my friends more. I've learned how to enjoy chores. And here I am thinking, you just eat biscuits and play Nintendo all day. That's not what is happening, especially when they are able to see you process your emotions truthfully. Because she's watching you.
0: That's why she says it, because she's watching you, probably thinking, what's this brought up for me? That's why you're modelling that. That's why she's saying it. Yeah.
1: For her to even come and have that conversation, especially in a black household, where, like I say in the book, for too long we've raised our children to be seen and not heard, for her to come into the living room and say, let's have a discussion about how I'm feeling about this situation. I look at my other half with like winning eyes. I'm like, we've actually won because neither you nor I would have had the chance to do that at six. It would have been get to bed, why you what? You know, to so have your feelings validated so young. I just think it's going to lead to such
0: powerful moments. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> It's been such a joy, such a joy. Thank you for your time. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends And also if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. And also just to let you know about my coaching. So I do work one-on-one with mums on my programme, which is a three-month programme called Reconnect To You. So if you want to work with me on taking your power back in any area of your life, then please do get in touch. Just drop me an email, zoe at motherkind.co or look on the website, www.motherkind.co. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.